Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Bible up here. I don't know whose that is. Does anybody else wake up in the summer tent before church and think, what is the least amount of clothes I can wear today and still be a respectable leader in the body of Christ? Anybody else have those thoughts? Listen, you're not alone. Okay, you're not alone. (laughs) There's a nice little breeze this morning, though. You feel that? That's awesome. Well, we're going to be in uh, Mark 5 this morning. If you want to open up there. You know, I just, I love to let the Bible lead in all the preaching. Because when the Bible leads... If you feel offended by my interpretation, you just have to take it up with the author, you know? And if you like love it, love it, love it, you just take it up with the author. And either way, when the Bible's leading, you end up with the author and that makes me wildly happy. So let's just end up with the author today. Like the best thing about the Bible is the author, right? So we're going to start in Mark 5, verse 1. And it says, They arrived at the other side of the lake, at the region of the Gerasenes. And as Jesus stepped ashore, a demon-possessed madman came out of the graveyard and confronted him. And, you know, I just, I had just been mulling over this passage for the last few weeks. And my first question was, where did they arrive from. It says they arrived at the other side and Jesus stepped ashore. So I I just like to see the whole picture. And so I looked back in, in Mark 4 and it's the famous story of when Jesus stills the storm. How many have ever been in a storm and you come back and you just sit in this passage? <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he was ministering to a large group of people, and it said that later that day it grew dark, and Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And so Jesus was very intentionally crossing over to this region where the madman was on the other side of the lake. And we all know how this story goes. They're like sailing along. In a violent storm erupts, and Jesus is sleeping in the cabin of the, of the ship, and the disciples are freaking out, right? Don't you care that we're all about to die? And, you know, the, the thought that always makes me laugh is if, you know, sometimes storms in our life can be so disorientating that we legitimately think this could be how my story ends. You know, can you imagine the gospel ending with, and then Jesus died in the cabin of the ship? Can you imagine? Like, 
He bankrupts heaven, comes to earth, fulfills a million prophecies, and then he died taking a nap. (laughs) There's no hope for humanity. And every year John Cole is in here, he tells our our students, your story just can't end that way. And then John died. So if, if you're in a storm, it's not the end of the story. And, you know, Jesus calms the storm down and the disciples are astonished. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And Jesus, Jesus you know, is poking at them. Why are you so afraid? Haven't you learned how to trust me? And, you know, our fear is an invitation into an unveiling of the reality of who Jesus is. Any, any area of your life right now where you're currently feeling afraid and life is storming about you, the issue isn't bringing peace to the storm. The issue is the overwhelming question is, who is this? Who is this God? Because I need an upgrade in my awareness of how big Jesus is. The disciples didn't have a Jesus that was bigger than their storm. And whenever we have a Jesus that's smaller than what's storming about us, we will live perpetually overwhelmed, perpetually afraid. And, you know, they, they discovered as they were making their way to the other side of the lake, that this, this, this Jesus is bigger than I thought he was. <laughs> and every circumstance of your life right now, at the heart of it is to serve you into an awareness, into an unveiling. He is way bigger than I think. And, you know, Jesus gets to where he's going, and he steps ashore on the other side of the lake. And, you know, there, there is a verse in the Gospels where Jesus says, I absolutely know where I come from and where I'm going. And without a doubt, Jesus knew why he was crossing to the other side of the lake and that he had come to pay a demon-possessed madman a visit. And, you know, the... The story in Mark 5, it, it, he says it. they arrived at the other side of the lake. And as Jesus stepped ashore, a demon-possessed madman came out of the graveyard and confronted him. The man had been living there among the tombs of the dead, and no one was able to restrain him, not even with chains. For every time they attempted to chain his hands and feet with shackles, he would snap the chains and break the shackles in pieces. He was so strong that no one had the power to subdue him. Day and night, he would be found lurking in the cemetery or in the vicinity, shrieking and mangling himself with stones. And, you know, out of all the people you would go out of your way, to cross a sea, move through a demonic storm, pull your disciples off a cliff thinking the savior of the world doesn't care about them, to show up 
for a visit with a man like this. Like, this, this is the heartbeat of what a nightmare would feel like in my dreams. <laughs> like, hey, who wants to go out to the cemetery and pay the demon-possessed madman who you can hear shrieking from the town a visit? Let's go have a conversation with him. Like, this isn't the place you send your kids to take a walk, you know? <laughs> like, he had become the terror of the entire community. And, you know, it's one thing to see a Jesus that's bigger than your storm, but the most terrifying thing is when that, is Jesus bigger than me? <laughs> and this, this man, everybody had tried to control him tie him up with chains, and he was so strong that he would just break through the shackles. And, you know, controlling your dysfunction will never bring true freedom. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes a religious spirit can get us to buy the lie that if we arrange our external circumstances in just the right way, we'll truly live free. But Jesus came trumpeting a freedom that was wildly different than that. It was a freedom that comes from the inside out. Like you can have no shackles binding you down and still live in torment on the inside. You know, freedom is not... Uh, I, I can say a cuss word every once in a while and don't feel guilty. <laughs> freedom is not, I can have a glass of wine and don't feel like I have to hide it in, in public, you know? That freedom is not first seen on the outside of your life, how you've arranged things. Well, I, I'm, I'm just going to rebel every sense of control so that I can be truly free. You know, when um, Paul and Silas, they were literally beaten and thrown into a prison, tied down with shackles. And you remember the story, they started erupting in worship. It, it was dark, it was cold, it was brutal. There was prisoners all around them. And they started singing a song to their God. And, you know, you remember the earth started to shake. And the shackles just fell off of their body. The prison doors flung wide open. And every single prisoner was set free by the sound of their worship. And for most of us in that moment, we would have said... Finally, this is, this is my deliverance. And we would have just gotten up and ran out of the open door. But what did they do? They stayed in the prison and they continued to worship because they, they weren't singing to be set free. They were singing because they already were free. And no matter what you bind on my life, no matter what you take off my life, freedom comes from the inside. Freedom is inside where the spirit of the resurrected Christ is living and breathing inside of me. And you know, there's no more terrifying feeling than, than what we can relate to this man feeling like nobody is big enough 
to help me. <laughs> Nobody is big enough. No amount of control. No amount of restraint. I am the biggest person in my story. And, you know, Jesus comes across the sea to find the man that nobody could help, that was terrorizing. He was famous for his terror. And, you know, it says that he was shrieking and mangling himself with stones. And, you know, self-harm, self-hatred is the heartbeat of the enemy. And if we, if we want to see, you know, where am I agreeing with the liar? Where am I agreeing with the father of lies? If, if you follow the places in your heart where, where you don't like yourself, you can find the places where you have agreed with the enemy. And, you know, None of the gospel has self-hatred in it. That denying yourself and taking up your cross has nothing to do with not liking yourself. And we don't sound like Jesus when we agree with cruelty and, and just brutal things over our lives. Some, some of you might be dealing with self-harm this morning physically, but some of us, if we're honest, we, we can find words that we use every day that hurt us. Oh, you're never gonna get this. You're ridiculous. You're a joke. You're a waste. You're not over this yet. You're still living out there like a madman where dead people are. You're so unwanted. Nobody cares. Who, who would care about you? And, you know, we allow things that we have learned through our story to become the narrative inside of our heart. And, you know, one of our heroes in this state, MLK, says, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And, you know, when you find yourself stuck in cycles that you hate, ah, I'm doing this again. I hate this about me. What got you into that cycle will not be what gets you out. You hated yourself into that cycle. You cannot hate yourself out of it. Only love can do that. Only kindness. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. So no matter how hard you are on yourself, no matter how frustrated, that will not make you more holy. It's the kindness of Jesus that leads to transformation in your life. And as soon as you can get as low as Jesus in your life, eyeball to eyeball, and see a king who's not ashamed of your self-hatred, see a king who would leave the crowd that was hungry for his attention and cross the sea to come find you in your shame. And you, you allow his goodness to be seen in the middle of your mess. 
transformation begins to take place. And, you know, it says the demon-possessed man saw Jesus in verse 6 from a distance. And he ran to him and threw himself down before him. And in the ESV, it says he fell down and worshipped. And, you know, the, he started screaming out at the top of his lungs, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And, you know, religion wants us to believe we run in worship once we're free. <laughs> once we're really set free, I'll be able to be a worshiper. I'll be able to sing songs. I'll be able to tap into intimacy with God like never before. And you know what? That's just a, a works mentality that has left the truth of the gospel. You bring all of your defunction to your worship. You bring all of your shame, all of your pain, and you, you fall down at the feet of Jesus in your poverty. And, you know, when Jesus climbed up the, the mountain and gave the most famous talk for all of time, you know, all, of, all preachers, we just sit down, we'll never arrive. The famous sermon on the mount, you know. And he said... Happy are those who feel their spiritual poverty because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, what a tragedy when we build a life trying to avoid feeling our spiritual poverty, feeling our need for him, our absolute dependence on him. And, you know, in the footnotes of the Passion Translation, there's just this beautiful word study on what does happy are those mean? You know, in most classic translations, it says blessed. But the Aramaic word is so big. And it, it, it means you're prosperous. You're satisfied. You're overwhelming with joy when you feel your spiritual poverty. And it... In that word, it means you have the capacity for communion and intimacy with God. That it's actually being aware of your need for Jesus that gives you a capacity to experience Jesus. And what, what a beautiful picture of someone being aware, I need someone bigger than me. I need a king that is bigger than me. And he still has, he has become such a habitation of, of lies and demonic influence that demons are literally speaking through his body. And yet he brings all of that and bows down in worship before the person of Jesus. And you know, Demons are yelling at Jesus, leave me alone. And you know, at the very beginning, God is like speaking everything into existence. And you're good, and you're good, and you're good. 
I'm good. Everything's good. It's like happy, happy. Our dreams are coming true. And then what happens? He, he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that man would be alone. And thousands of years later, there's still a demonic attack to get man to be satisfied alone. And the demons are screaming, leave me alone. And that thing that erupts inside of us that feels shame in being needy. And it feels shame in needing someone bigger than ourselves. It, it is a mindset that is demonic. A very attack against the design of who you are. The design, the intention of your creator that says, be together. Need me. I've wired you to not figure it out alone. I've wired you to need my help. And you know that... That thing that says, leave me alone, Jesus, it is your arch enemy. Your very DNA has been designed to need his nearness. And, you know, Jesus looks at the man. He says, he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God, swear in God's name, <laughs> that's his name, that you won't torture me. For Jesus had already said to him, come out of that man, you demon spirit. And Jesus said to him, what is your name? Mob, he answered. They call me mob because there are thousands of us in his body. And he begged Jesus repeatedly not to expel them out of the region. And you know, <laughs> if you just try to use your imagination to be on the sideline while all this is happening, and a demon is speaking through a man's body saying, my name is Mob. Just a little bit terrifying, you know, and he, he is having thousands of encounters with the demonic every single day. Thousands. And, you know, Rachel, Quinn, and I went up to the city a couple weeks ago to hear Wendy Backlin. Um, she was preaching at a service up there, and she's one of my favorites. And she said this one time, she was reading in this book about trauma in your brain and how one traumatic event uh, wreaks havoc inside the development of your brain. And she was just reading this list of all of the detrimental things that happen scientifically inside of your brain when trauma enters in. And she just felt the weight of that reality and as she was just sitting in the weight of it she heard the Lord say Wendy if trauma can have one experience of trauma can have that much impact on your brain what could one experience with my love do to your brain 
What could one encounter with the fullness of who I am do to every cell of your body, to every fiber of who you are? And we, we see this man living for who knows how long in continual trauma, in continual self-harm, self-hatred. Who knows how he got the story from where he started to how he ended up living in a cemetery. Like nobody just wakes up in the morning and decides I'm going to welcome thousands of demons and go live in a cemetery. Like, and one encounter with Jesus completely makes everything wrong right. And the demons start begging Jesus not to be sent out of the region. And I just love this picture of, you know, the justice of Jesus is always pointed at what violated love and turned you into a beggar. That, that the justice of Jesus is not first pointed at your sin and your wrong choices. The justice of Jesus is turned towards what is stealing from your identity. You know, a, a good father if he finds out his kids are stealing bread, he's not going to go punish his kids for stealing bread. He's going to get down really low and say, are you hungry? Are, are your needs not being met? Why are you stealing bread? And a, a religious mindset is just constantly focused on what we are doing right, what we're doing wrong. And the heart of the Father is constantly focused on, why are you begging? Do you know who I am? Do you know the house that you live in? Have you seen the fridge? Did you know you can open it anytime you need? Did you know you're, you're actually not a beggar? You actually don't need to steal to get your needs met. And I, I love the picture of whatever turns you into to a beggar, Jesus causes to beg before him. And the demons are literally begging at the feet of Jesus. And he is standing in all of his righteousness, in all of his perfection. And he is watching every knee bow and every tongue confess nothing is bigger than Jesus. A mob of a thousand demons is nothing to Jesus. He turns thousands of tormenting demons into beggars just by his very presence. And, you know, John Tyson, he's this brilliant theologian that we've been listening to. And he says, if you don't have a devil in your story, you will demonize people. And if we don't live aware that there is actually an enemy that has stepped into your story to kill, still, and destroy, you will turn the people in your life who hurt you into your enemy. 
But if you can lift up your head and see injustice started way before they were written into your story, then we can receive the satisfaction of watching Jesus turn on its head everything that was sent to devour you. And, you know, the, the demons go flying into a bunch of pigs and they start rushing down the side of the hill and they drown themselves in the lake. It's just hard to imagine, like, this really happened. <laughs> this really happened. And, uh, you know, it drowned about 2,000 pigs. And when you just look into the story, that is a lot of money for this region. This was their entire economic sustenance was these pigs. And so the herdsmen fled to all the villages and told everyone what had happened. And they came and they found Jesus and saw the demonized man sitting there properly clothed, having a conversation in his right mind with Jesus. And the kingdom of heaven had come upon him. And the kingdom makes every crooked thing right. Happy are those who feel their spiritual poverty because theirs is the kingdom. And you got to live your real story to experience the real kingdom. And he brought his real poor story to the feet of Jesus and ends up in his right mind, dignified, fully clothed, having a conversation with Jesus. And it was so extraordinary that the whole village was terrified. And they, they said, you got to get out of here. You got to leave Jesus. And they, they asked Jesus to leave because they're so scared. And Jesus basically ruined their economic life and you know the kingdom came upon this man because the king was there and you know Jesus came trumpeting the kingdom is at hand it's as close as my hand because I am the heartbeat of the kingdom I am the king. So wherever I am, the kingdom has come. And, you know, the, the overall grand scheme of the gospel is to put the king inside of you so that it doesn't become work to bring the kingdom. It becomes part of your identity. I showed up, so the kingdom showed up. And, you know, if you haven't become what the kingdom is, bringing the kingdom will just be works. If you haven't become kindness inside of yourself, but you dish out kindness everywhere you go, kindness has become a religious activity in your life because you can only impart who you are. You know, the fruit of the spirit, if you haven't become patience, if you're constantly, get on with this, move on, you should be over this, you're taking too much time, I can't believe you're still here, look how, look how much farther everybody else is in the kingdom, and you're still way back here, that's zero patience. 
but you're handing out patience, developing the attributes of patience. It has just become a religious activity in your life until you become patience on the inside of yourself, until you receive the person of patience and you allow the reality of the kingdom to live from the inside out. The kingdom is within you. It's not something you cultivate in your outside world. It's inside of you. And, you know, he, they, all, they all asked Jesus to leave. It says in verse 17, then they asked Jesus to leave their region. Like, if there's anything you don't want written in your story, it is verse 17. And then she asked him to go. <laughs> because he disrupted your entire world and he was wildly terrifying because he hasn't been created in my image. I have been created in his image and it is terrifying when we bump into a Jesus that is wildly bigger than what we ever thought or dreamt on our best day. And, you know, so he's getting in the boat in verse 18. It says, and as Jesus began to get in the boat to depart, the man who had been set free from demons asked him, could I go with you? You can imagine this man looking around at everybody being angry because he's free. You know, you're like, his story was I was shrieking out of my mind, full of self-hatred, cutting myself with no hope, out of control. No one was big enough to help me. And now you're asking the very man who brought my deliverance to get out of here. And you can imagine him watching. My life is not worth the price of your pigs. You know? Well, of course he's looking at Jesus and saying, can I please go with you? Like, can you please take me from this place? You know? <laughs> and Jesus answered and he says, no. <laughs> and this is the process of becoming like Jesus. You know, uh, you know the back ones say, uh, you're saved when you believe in Jesus, but you're transformed when you begin to think like Jesus. And that takes time to learn his ways. It says uh, the people of Israel were accustomed with the acts of God, but Moses was familiar with the ways of God. And there is no shortcut to knowing Jesus. You can encounter Jesus in one moment and have your whole world flipped upside down. 30 years later, I'm still getting to know Jesus. I'm like, whoa, I feel challenged. I feel poor. I feel more in need of the gospel today than I ever have in the whole of my story. Man, you know, as I was even preparing to preach this message, I felt 
Jesus say in that place of poverty in my story, Jen? I love when my people preach the gospel from their need for the gospel. And I feel like I'm the most needy person in the room today. And that's good. And it's right. And it's the process of becoming like him. And, you know, so often we can feel shame that I didn't get everything I needed to get in one encounter. And what, what a tragedy that would be if we lost intimacy, if we lost a God who wanted to walk with us and talk with us, who wanted to take his time on you. You know, you rush things that you don't value. So how disvaluing would that be if your God was like, uh, this is a waste of my time. You're a waste of my time. How beautiful when we bump in to the person of Jesus who wants to walk with you and talk with you in the cool of the day. So he says, no, you can't come with me. <laughs> and he says, go back to your home and to your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them how he had mercy on you. And, you know, I, th I think sometimes it's easier to feel the thrill of faith when we think about going forward. And it's like, it's the unknown, it's full of risk, it requires wild trust, it's a little bit exciting and terrifying all at the same time. It's like, Abraham, just pack up your bags and go, you're a pioneer. Listen, it takes just as much faith when Jesus says, go back. <laughs> Go back to your beginning and bring my mercy. Go back all the way to your hometown where your story began and no doubt it was traumatic. And carry my mercy. Bring it with you and start at the beginning and say, listen to what Jesus did for me. And you step up to every place of trauma because true freedom is not forgetting. True freedom is bringing the mercy of Jesus and saying, look what I know. Look what I know. And, you know, so often we avoid pain and call it following Jesus. <laughs> But, you know, he cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. Glory to glory is not just one direction. He's outside of time. And there's just as much glory in your past to be seen and savored as there is in your future to be explored and sought out after. And Jesus sent this man back to his beginning and say, tell everyone about my mercy. And, you know, he went back to the city that he was from and it's, it, listen to what it says. So he left and, and went into the region he was from and he told everyone he met what Jesus had done for him and all the people marveled. And, you know, the heartbeat of knowing you have had an intimate exchange with the mercy of Jesus is that you have become a marvel. That the whole earth, Romans says, is groaning. It's on tiptoe in eager expectation 
waiting for the sons and daughters of God to erupt on the earth, to live a story where the main event isn't the torment that you went through, where the main event isn't how many demons were locked inside of your soul, but the main event is the mercy of Jesus, the intimate exchange of this is what mercy did for me. And, you know, only Jesus can take a man who was living as a terror to planet Earth and turn him into something marvelous that all the people looked at and ooed over and awed over. And he became an invitation into mercy. And, you know, disvaluing your story, like is the greatest detriment that can be done to humanity in your hour of history. Because the emphasis isn't on how extreme is the story you came from, but how intimate is the mercy that's been given to you. And, you know, I'm just going to end with this if you want to stand up. Uh, The other day, my youngest daughter, she got this scooter for Christmas and it's a powered scooter and she was super afraid to ride it because it goes so fast so we were kind of like maybe that was a christmas fail a little behind her you know but the other day she was secretly practicing and just a little bit at a time i was in the house doing stuff and i didn't know this was going on and she's like mustering up courage to ride this scooter and so she's like mom i gotta show you something it's a big deal And so I go outside and I sit on the bench. You ready for this? I'm ready. So she gets on this scooter and she just pushes it all the way. It's going fast. She goes all the way to the mailbox, all the way back. And she comes over and she's like, was that amazing? Or was that like, whoa. And I was like, Oh, that was whoa. And everything in me legitimately felt like that was whoa. And, you know, there's a man pulling around in our cul-de-sac while all this was happening. You know what? He didn't think that was amazing or whoa. He probably thought, oh, there's a kid on a scooter. Or he probably thought, what am I going to have for lunch? Like, he, he did not think she was marvelous, I guarantee, in any way. And when you start categorizing how marvelous you are based on strangers in the cul-de-sac, you have missed the point of intimate mercy. Because when the person of Jesus looks at your life you you don't need him less than the man with a thousand demons you don't need him more than the man with a thousand demons all of humanity is in desperate need of Jesus and when you step into an intimate exchange with mercy that is personal you become a marvel to the earth. You become an invitation into intimacy. I love you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. 
To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.